Mark Antony rises to speak beside Caesar's dead body. The noble Brutus hath told you that Caesar was ambitious. If it was so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. If something about this performance is not what you're accustomed to... He was my friend, faithful and just to me. If Mark Antony's vocal register is higher than what you're used to hearing... When that the poor hath cried, Caesar hath wept, ambition should be made of sterner stuff, yet Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honorable man. Well, there's a reason. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. What you just heard was actress Cush Jumbo in an all-female production of Julius Caesar that was first produced by the Donmar Warehouse in London in 2012, part of a trilogy of all-female Shakespeare productions directed by Tony Award-nominated director Phyllida Lloyd. The other two legs of the trilogy were Henry IV, produced in 2014, and The Tempest in 2016. The Guardian called the trilogy one of the most important theatrical events of the past 20 years because it has enabled audiences to envision alternatives to what's considered the norm in Shakespeare performance. We invited Miss Lloyd to come in and talk with us about the production of her trilogy from conception through to production. We call this podcast, We Are Governed With Our Mother's Spirits. Phyllida Lloyd is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Well, let's start with the idea of producing all-female Shakespeare. What made you want to do it? Well, I was trying to trace the origin of this, and I think it goes really back to my very eccentric all-girls boarding school in the early 1970s. Academic achievement was very thin on the ground, but theatre was everything, and Every Wednesday night, we had to do Shakespeare reading and my very formidable English mistress, Miss Dylan Weston, in orange ankle socks and sandals with plaits wrapped around (laughs) her That's an image I I won't forget. Would be sort of giving her King Lear while the rest of us played all the smaller roles. It came from a sense, we left that school feeling we could be anything. We could be a sea captain or a king. We could be funny and that all the parts were available to us in not just on the stage, but in the world. And so it was a rude awakening to find that that wasn't quite how the world worked. You know, I share that with you. I also went to an all-girls school and and graduated with that feeling. And it is a rude shock. And I'm thinking that the people in charge of the theatres are mostly men, both in in the UK and here here in America still. I think it's not a kind of um, conspiracy to keep us in the kitchen or or just as the love interest. It's just that they kind of have assumed that's how the world has worked in terms of the classical theatre. There's definitely that. But do you think do you think they're just not really interested in cross gender casting or I'm talking to the people in charge or, or do you think they think the audience isn't interested in it? I think that. You know, everything is changing, not just on the classical stage, but in terms of the questioning of gender and identity and to what extent we are corralled by society into playing certain roles and behaving in a certain way. So depending on people's sensibility, whether they feel it's an exciting, you know, 
I'm talking about the men you're mentioning who might be running theatres, they may see it as a very thrilling opportunity to break up um, received norms, or they may feel it's incumbent on them just to reflect the makeup of the audience in how the stage is peopled. Well, in terms of the Shakespeare, I'm thinking of a few things that I've read that you said, for instance, that you conceived uh, this Julius Caesar production as a way to redress the imbalance in Shakespeare, that, that there's simply no spiritual, intellectual, or metaphysical equivalent to Lear, the Richards, the Henrys, Othello, and Iago. Well, the the reason I put together this all-female production of Julius Caesar, it actually came at a very particular moment. The Olympics were happening in Great Britain in 2012, and there were a number of projects that seemed to be heavily, for me, f- freighted um, in, in favour of men. There was also a report published in London saying that for every job that was going for a woman in the theatre, there were two jobs for men, or that the balance of employment was two to one. And two girlfriends of mine had just got their hands on the keys of a very important London theatre, the Donmar, and they asked me to be part of their opening season and said, what would you do? And I said, well, how about an all-female Shakespeare? And my friend Harriet Walter, I went to see her, and she had largely run out of road on the classical stage. She was she was going to be really having to just give up on Shakespeare, which was her passion and her great, great skill. So I said to her, what are you good casting for? And she said, Macbeth and Brutus. I've got much more in common with Brutus than I ever had with Cleopatra. I kiss thy hand, but not in flattery, Caesar, desiring thee that Publius Simba may have an immediate freedom of repeal. What? Brutus. Pardon, Caesar. So that's how that all began. It was really, it began as, you know, jobs for the girls unashamedly. I didn't want my niece going to see any more classical plays thinking, oh, you know, I'm the one in the corner sort of mooning over the leading man. I wanted to feel that she could go to the theatre and think, my God, I could be in charge. Exactly. You could command the stage. Yeah. Oh, ye gods, ye gods, must I endure all this? All this? I more. Fret to your proud heartbreak. Go show your slaves how choleric you are. Make your bondmen tremble. Must I budge? Must I observe you? Must I stand and crouch under your testy humor by heaven? I, I am wondering, though, what single gender casting does for the audience in Shakespeare. Well, mm. What's the effect of it and, and what's the power of it? Well, it's it's a distancing effect on one level. I think what's thrilling about it, whether it's all men or all women, is that you start seeing the shapes. And I think that's something that audiences who came to see these productions, who some of whom knew the plays backwards, like liturgy, would say to us, my God, I, you know, you're literally, it's like hearing the same score played on different instruments. We're literally seeing different shapes hearing new parts of the text. This is a most majestic vision, harmonious, charmingly. May I be bold to think these spirits, spirits, which by mine art I have from their confines called to enact my present fancies. Let me live here ever. Such a rare, wondered father and a wife makes this place paradise. Sweet now. Silence. 
just it's a disruption. It's not necessarily the, the you know the ultimate solution, but it definitely does. A lot of rust and dust comes off the the play. You did get some blowback from reviewers, as you all you always do get blowback from reviewers. That's what they're there for. And uh, I'm thinking of one that I read, and here's a quote: "Female to male cross casting remains a comparative rarity. When it does occur, it can trigger audience skepticism and critical discontent." And then it went on to say that you know compare the praise lavished on Mark Rylance's uh, Globe shows with some of the reviews uh, greeting your Julius Caesar. What do you think the hangup? Is here. I mean, do, do you do you think? And and I'm thinking of one of your actors in Julius Caesar who said it, that it makes people scared to see girls running around with such power. I think it was as much to do with the ferocity of the group. Were uh, you you may know these productions were set in a woman's prison, and. I mean, to say they took no prisoners was an understatement. I think there was a feeling that when they walked onto the stage, I sometimes felt, particularly if we had a corporate audience, that they felt, my God, you prisoners are there. We're here. You know, don't come any closer to us. Briefly, I dwell by the capital. Your name, sir, truly. Truly, my name is Sinner. What? Truly, my name is Sinner. He's a conspirator. Yeah. There was something about the um, illusion of that these women were obsessed with freedom and justice to the point that they were prepared to commit slaughter for it. It was that real. Yes, and of course that's going to be, you know, a little, create a little unrest, I think, in the spirits of an audience. Speak hands for me! Tell us more about why you decided then to set these three plays in in prison. I chose Julius Caesar because it was one of, in a way, one of the most macho of plays in which almost all the actresses would be freed from the domestic and the romantic. Um, And then I began to think perhaps there's a way of helping the audience and the actors believe the action of the play. Uh, that, as I say, that the characters are obsessed with freedom and justice. They have a great apprehension of danger. They're full of superstition, something we discovered that um, many prisoners are. And so I had this idea of, of setting the production in a prison. It seemed an appropriate metaphor, and we went indeed into a woman's prison first, Holloway Prison in London, to test whether this was just an intellectual idea or whether it had roots. And we were gratified to find out that the prisoners, they deemed the play, I quote, highly suitable to their concerns. That's that's an understatement of the year. (laughs) Yes. 
and and but then what became what began as in a way an aesthetic choice as we our work in prison um began to deepen we we brought on to into the company um we we collaborated with a company called Clean Break who worked with female ex-offenders and brought two of their members into the company and as we began to understand more about being in prison and spend more time in prison and be more cognizant of course the setting of the plays in prison became less a device and more absolutely fundamental to our mission how do you direct uh in order to to meet that standard of we're just looking at people we're almost in in a post gender situation here what kind of notes do you give your mm. your all female cast on how to physically play these male originally male characters because there's always the pitfalls of of cliched behavior and crotch grabbing and and scratching and that can get really tiresome and you're really addressing something so much larger than gender so so how do you get your actors beyond that to something more significant about how men and women inhabit both their bodies and space we worked with a brilliant american movement director called Anne Yee now based in Dallas and Anne helped us to uh, build this world of men and at first we we started by watching men and just thinking how do they go about their daily business how do they um speak and we noticed all kinds of things about how men are very direct they take up space they don't use their hands at all often when they speak in a way that women modify their speech all the time with their hands the skies are painted with unnumbered sparks they are all fire and every one doth shine but there's but one in all doth hold his place so in the world it is furnished well with men and men are flesh and blood and apprehending yet in the number i do know but one that unassailable holds on his rank unshaked of motion and that i am he let me a little show it even in this after a while we began to stop worrying about being men and we just stopped doing the things that might have made the audience think oh i'm looking at a woman so we edited out the sort of femaleness of it although although there is an interesting thing when a woman uh, a woman playing a woman then comes onto the stage Yes, of course that's when you were very much reminded that you were looking at a lot of women and it was those moments in Caesar when Portia came onto the stage you suddenly thought oh my god hang on a minute Harriet Walter is also a woman but I'd totally forgotten she was but somehow um by having building this prison world they began to learn how a prisoner male or female walks down a corridor when there's a strong apprehension that maybe they might be jumped on or you know there's a sense of holding yourself in a particular way lest you be attacked and by putting people into prison uniform they were immediately rendered androgynous so that was another benefit so we were working on this parallel world we had the world of the prisoners and the hierarchy within our prison and then we had shakespeare's characters most high most mighty and most puissant caesar metella simba throws before thy seat a humble heart i must prevent thee simba 
these couchings and these lowly courtesies might fire the blood of ordinary men and turn pre-ordinance and first decree into the law of children. Be not fond to think that Caesar bears such rebel blood that will be thawed from the true quality with that which melteth fools. And let's talk about these three plays. Well, what was your decision-making process in, in choosing these plays, Julius Caesar, Henry IV, and the, and the Tempest, rather than, say, Hamlet or Macbeth or Anthony and Cleopatra? It began really with Harriet. As I say, she felt she was very good casting for Brutus. Then when we'd had a success with Caesar... We came back from St. Anne's Warehouse in America feeling um, we really can do this and set about looking for another play that would be, first of all, good for the ensemble and also a play that made sense of the prison context. And Henry IV was a play about, really, about rehabilitation. Can this young person who's torn between two kinds of parent the very stern parent and the completely indulgent parent, which way is he going to go? And this was something the prisoners completely recognised. Oh, that's interesting. It's like putting, putting your past behind you. Yes. Can you put your past behind you? And how hard is it to change? And we got one of the, the actress who played Hal went into prison and stood up and did the famous Hal soliloquy saying, you know, I'm going to imitate the sun and I'm going to, I'm, I'm kind of hidden behind the clouds, but my God, watch what happens when I step out because nobody's expecting me to step out as a virtuous person. So how much more blinding is that going to be for everyone? We stood up in prison and one prisoner said, my God, the governor's heard that speech often. <laughs> and we said, well, how, how's that? And she said, well, let me play the governor and I'll show you. Oh, this is wonderful. They're teaching you how to workshop. <laughs> yeah, stood up and um, began speaking it. And this lady playing the governor said, Claire, I think we've heard you in here. You were in here six months ago saying this and absolutely nothing has changed. You know, you're coming in here asking for parole. What's to suggest you're not going to be back in six months? This idea that change is very, very hard. We were very lucky to have a live audio link into prison in our rehearsals. So... We would sit round and read a scene and we'd say to them, so what is going on? And they'd say, well, I mean, the Earl of Northumberland feels guilty. I mean, he's converting his guilt into rage and revenge. The point was that these women had lived literally Shakespearean lives. They had experienced betrayal, murder, revenge, banishment. They understood what honour was because when you've lost everything, you know, honour is all that you have left. Somehow we began to learn a great deal from them as they were learning that they were not voiceless. So we would say to them, you know, that joke you suggested to us, uh, it went down really well in Brooklyn and they felt buried alive in jail what a lifeline to hear that, to hear that they're making a mark across the ocean. Yes, that their voices were being heard not just in London, but, you know, across the Atlantic. It was, to them, it was like a kind of miracle. There was this sense of, from uh, people who saw the play that perhaps it was easier for you to do Henry IV with an all-female cast because it's all about 
the responsibilities of power, but also the destructive potential of of of, of swaggering men, swaggering male machismo. Well, machismo. I think both plays. Um, I mean, Caesar too was a play about how society forces men to avoid being womanish, quote unquote. Um, I mean. But it was Shakespeare saying, you know, no, men, society forces men not to cry. And yet he wasn't saying that's a good thing. And I think one of the things Henry and and Caesar also revealed to us that their play is about family and about love and that somehow that was another thing that the audiences commented on, that they'd never felt so much love in Caesar between the men the sense of fathers and sons and lost lost sons bizarrely seemed to become really vivid played by women it was strange this is on a uh, this is getting back to the the prison setting uh, one of my folger colleagues saw your production of the tempest in london now no tongue all eyes be silent And she wanted to know how you conceived of the wedding mask scene, because it, it strays the farthest from the prison setting, but at the same time, she felt that the way you staged it seemed to be a metaphor for, for deprivation and confinement. So ha- first, describe the scene. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, we workshopped The Tempest in prison, and one of the things we looked at was ritual in prison what, what how do you celebrate when you don't have anything and and what are so so the wedding between ferdinand and miranda which is accompanied by a mask became really did become a wedding in prison and um we looked at what could you get in prison and what would you dream of having if you couldn't have anything so obviously you couldn't have alcohol but you could have starbucks so at the moment when you'd expect champagne, in came two cappuccinos. And you could see no. the bride and groom no, in a state All of ecstasy that they'd, they'd got cappuccino <laughs> because they couldn't really afford it more than about once a year. So everything became heightened in its detail. We then projected onto balloons prisoners' dreams. Images of blue skies, waterfalls. And these gradually, it it went very subtly from seas into fast cars and then logos for expensive watches and expensive train running shoes and and perfume <laughs> and then the McDonald's sign came up on the balloons and the audience used to erupt in cheers at the sign of the McDonald's <laughs> logo on all the balloons and at that point Harriet, who was playing Prospero, suddenly called out and all the house lights came up on the audience and she ran into the space and took a pencil and just these 16 gigantic balloons filled with helium, she just smashed them and banged them and they went off with a 
like a gun crack round the room and you could see the audience looking absolutely horrified, like, what is she doing? And then, of course, she went into her famous speech. Be cheerful, sir. Our revels now are ending. These, our actors, as I foretold you, are all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. <laughs> About, you know, the cloud-capped towers and we are such stuff as dreams are made on, as if to say all of this stuff is just nothing. You know, we're all craving things and power and influence and money, but ultimately it's all meaningless. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on. Our little life is rounded with a sleep. Ah, oh, sir, I am vexed. Bear with my weakness. My old brain um, I, I, I was curious when I uh, heard about your trilogy with an all-female cast. Why do Shakespeare? Why not just do plays by women? You, you could do Carol Churchill's something from her of Top Girls or Lynn Nottage who wrote Ruined or, or pretty much anything by Wendy Wasserstein. Why Shakespeare? Well... I don't know whether this is what postmodernism is. I'm not sure. I've always thought postmodern is taking something and taking something that people already know and turning it upside down and putting it in a new light. But I think that we wanted to somehow challenge the establishment and take something that... I mean, I, I don't want to say this was like the Reformation, taking something that had always been done in Latin for thousands of years and saying, right, what happens if we read it in English? But that was how we felt about it, that we were taking something that certainly since the 19th, the end of the 19th century in England, when, when Shakespeare started to be done in the UK in a more realistic, naturalistic way. I mean, up until that time as I'm sure many listeners will know, Shakespeare was done in modern dress in, in, the, in the period of the audience. So you see, you know, 19th century etchings of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, and they are in Victorian costume, just as in the 18th century. They're in 18th century costume. This must have been a very, very, a kind of Hamilton-like experience for the audience. Right, really revolutionary. Yeah, it's always been updated. You know, you're watching something, a story that might be like in Shakespeare's time, they were watching a story about Henry IV, 200, history from 200 years before, performed in fundamentally Elizabethan costumes with some, you know, medieval ingredients or a Roman play performed in Elizabethan costume about something that's happened. And of course, so it feels a very modern experience, but we've lost that. We had lost that in the UK since the turn of the 20th century when we started doing, you know, saying, well, we'll do Henry IV, so we'll all dress medieval, or we'll do Julius Caesar, so we'll all dress Roman. This was a new thing. And I think it doesn't hasn't helped somehow release the sort of universality of these plays. And I think the same... In, in terms of gender, that actually by getting stuck with, you know, the men have to play the men and the women play the men, women, they were never intended to be performed, to be so slavishly attentive to 
the literalness of the people. We were trying to take something that where there's a very received idea about how it should be presented and just explode it. So you were set to go all Martin Luther on, on, on their, uh, their Yes, behind. exactly. Mm-hmm. There's something I want to get to before we ha- we could keep you here all, all day and night, but uh, your trilogy is going to be part of the Edinburgh International Film Festival because you also filmed the stage performances. I wondered what it meant for the directing. Uh, what did you have to take into consideration to, to make these things work, both on stage and, and as films? Okay, first of all, I am very, very sceptical about theatre on screen. Indeed, I'd been asked several times whether we, I would be prepared to let it go out as part of NT Live. NT Live? Uh, you, meaning our, our live performances from the National Theatre that go out in cinema, in movie theatres. You have Yes, them. I have seen them. I've seen Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch's Hamlet. Right. Well, I didn't want that to happen it just does a disservice to both mediums. It's a kind of botched, half-hybrid thing. So, But as we neared the end of this five-year project, the question was, well, what is the legacy of this? And particularly for Harriet Walter, who was playing in one day Brutus, Prospero and Henry IV. You know, I began to think... I've got to capture this because these are some of the greatest performances people are likely to see of these roles. And so um, authentic Shakespearean. I mean, so back in the day. Yes. That's what they did. Yes. So I decide, and, and by then, this project had begun at the Donmar, a small um, three-sided theatre, and we had by now exploded into a theatre in the round which offers certain possibilities for filming that a a proscenium march or an end on or even a thrust stage doesn't. In other words, you can shoot it like a movie by getting on the actor's eye lines, by putting the camera where you would if you were shooting a film, which you can rarely do in a usual theatre because the audience are sitting there. So you can really place a viewer in the seats of of a theatre. Yes, and what I wanted to do was take the audience somewhere that they could never possibly have gone. And that was a lot to do with, as I say, getting right in there, um, over the shoulder. And I did a sort of kamikaze thing where I shot two performances like a movie, where I shot from one end one night and the other end the other night and then cut them together like a film. And I also used a lot of... GoPro tiny cameras which were sometimes on the actors' bodies, they were on their heads, they were on their chests, where we wanted to really get a kind of visceral energy, particularly in some of the more murderous fighting violent sequences because one of the problems about, again, about theatre on screen is the lack of real camera movement tends to be quite staid. I didn't really think that was a good record of this so I'm never this is these are not films I've made in any sense they are records but um, I think Julius Caesar in particular works really well because the audience of Julius our production of Julius Caesar become 400 unpaid extras in the scene in which Caesar is murdered 
I mean, they don't realise it's going to happen, but the murder happens in the audience. And um, that was great fun, putting a camera on that, because obviously the audience didn't know it was going to happen. Um, And just there was something very exciting about that. Well, I, I hear your reservations about the Frankenstein nature of, of these film theater hybrids, but I'm so glad you made the films, and I'm so glad that you could spend time with us today. I really appreciated talking with you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Phyllida Lloyd is a film, theater, and opera director whose trilogy of Shakespeare's plays, Julius Caesar, Henry IV, and The Tempest, were produced in 2012, 2014, and 2016, respectively, by the Donmar Warehouse in London. At the time we recorded this interview, all three productions had just been filmed and Julius Caesar had been selected for the Edinburgh International Film Festival. It's scheduled to screen in late June 2017. After that, it will be available in movie theaters in the UK, followed by a limited release in the US. Films of the other two plays will be available later in 2017. We Are Governed with Our Mother's Spirits was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from Chris Charles at the Sound Company in London. We'd like to ask you a favor. If you've been enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, I hope you'll consider reviewing the podcasts on whatever platform you get the podcast from. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. We'd really appreciate your help. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.